Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for over 24 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm a writer, podcast host, and accountability coach. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 diabetes for about eight years now. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 52 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking with Dr. Glenn Livingston, a veteran psychologist who specializes in overeating and binging. Disillusioned with what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating through work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Today, we're talking about his book, Never Binge Again, and how type 1 diabetics and type 2 diabetics can use the principles in that book to get a handle on their food mentality, even if they're not suffering from traditional eating disorders. Please remember that Glenn is not a medical doctor, and this is not medical advice. This is an overview of Glenn's experience working with people to stop overeating and, as he calls it, think like a permanently thin person. A reminder for our audience, if you have any questions about type 1 diabetes, please leave us a comment or send an email to colleen at inspiredforward.com. We answer listener questions in future episodes. I have the win of the week. A quick win for me is that I only had to change my set twice and my sensor once while on vacation. I brought extra supplies just in case, but I used less than I thought I'd have to for an eight-day road trip. I also have the fail this week because Jesse is out. And this one also has to do with my road trip. My blood sugars were a little more unstable during my vacation because my sleep schedule was different. I was eating dinner with family instead of doing my usual intermittent fasting. And I snacked a lot while in the car instead of waiting for us to stop for meals. So that's something for me to learn from for future road trips or future trips with family. Our hack this week is more of a try this tip. Glenn Livingston's book, Never Binge Again, is free on Amazon. And you can find the link to it in the show notes. Go ahead and give it a read and try his stop overeating method if that's been a problem for you. And now on to the interview with Dr. Glenn Livingston. All right, welcome to the show, Glenn. It's nice to have you on. So nice to be here. Thank you, Colleen. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. And start with uh, asking you to give us the rundown of who you are, what you do, and maybe how diabetes ties into it. Okay. Well, I, I was pre-diabetic. I had syndrome X at one point right, for type 2. So, But I, I managed to reverse that when I lost a bunch of weight. I suppose the most important thing to know about me is that I'm not just a psychologist who decided to work in weight loss. I, I'm a guy that actually specifically trained not to work in weight loss because I had troubles myself. If you've been to, been to Syosset, New York, and you stopped by a 7-Eleven and they were out of pizzas and Pop-Tart, uh, it's probably because I was there right before you. So, <laughs> you know, when, when I was about 17, I'm moderately muscular. And if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I figured out that I could eat whatever I wanted to. Multiple pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars. I really could eat ridiculous, ginormous amounts and stay thin. And I thought that that was a really cool thing. I thought it was like a superpower. Doug Graham told me that. And the only problem was, like in retrospect, 
it turned me into a, I mean, I was thin, I was happy, but it really turned me into an eating, pooping, sleeping, and exercising machine. And there were a lot of other productive things that 17-year-old boys are supposed to be doing, but I wasn't. And so as the years went by, it worked for me until I was 22, 23 years old. And um, I was commuting two hours a day in both directions to see patients and go to school, graduate school. I was helping my ex-wife at the time run a business. I was studying and I, I just didn't have the time to work out. But I found that the food was always still on my mind. It had a life of its own. And what really bothered me was not so much that I was gaining weight, but I was on and off. I gain it, I lose it, I gain it, I lose it. And then it kind of started to creep up as the years went by. What bothered me more was that it stopped me from being a really good psychologist because anybody that knows what psychology is really about, it's, it's not this intellectual endeavor. It's not really where someone presents you with the jigsaw puzzle of their life and then you rotate the pieces and show them, here, put this piece here, put this piece there, and then your life will be okay. And they say, thanks, Doc, I'll get right on that. It's, it's more like you have to lend them your soul. You've got to be exquisitely present with them. You've got to be willing to go through hell with them. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I forgot who said that first, but they really don't. And that bothered me. I'm from a family of 17 therapists. My mom and my dad and my sister and my cousins and my uncle and my, even the family dog, I think, wants to ask you how you're feeling. But if something breaks in the house, nobody knows how to fix it. But I, I, all I ever really wanted to do was be a great psychologist. And I couldn't because I couldn't be exquisitely present. I could just barely be present. I'd be sitting with suicidal kids and I'd be thinking, when can I get a pizza? Or I'd be working with you know, a couple on the verge of breaking up because they discovered an affair and I just couldn't wait to get to the deli. And I did a good job. I, I worked really hard. I kind of compensated for it by thinking about what the people said and doing a lot of journaling and trying to figure out how to intervene. And I, I never lost anybody. And out of about 250 couples, only two of them ever got divorced that I know of. But I wasn't there. I wasn't whole. And so being from a family of psychologists, I figured the problem must be a psychological one. It must be that there is a hole in my heart. And if I could figure out how to fill the hole in my heart, that I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. I decided to go see some of the best psychologists in and around the New York area. And coming from my family, you can imagine I knew who they were. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous. And I also, um, I took medication for a little while. I did everything you could imagine. I had a very soul-filled, soul-searching journey, which I think helped make me the person that I am today. And so I don't regret that. But it was kind of a wild goose chase for me with the food. I found that I learned things about myself, which surprised me and made me stop hating myself so much. But sometimes those things would make me eat more, quote unquote, make me. So for example, I didn't commute and my ex-wife at the time was traveling for business. So we didn't have kids and I had a lot of time in my hands. And so I worked and I developed a dual career. So in addition to being a couples and family therapist, I wound up consulting for industry. Um, I was on the wrong side of the war. I wish I didn't do it. But in my 30s, I did. And I wound up consulting for big food and big pharma. And in the work that I was doing with big food, 
I was a marketing research consultant, a psychological research consultant. And in the work I was doing with big food, I discovered a couple of things. First of all, I saw that they were spending millions, if not billions of dollars to engineer these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that are all targeted at hitting the bliss point in our lizard brain, hitting those evolutionary buttons without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. That was my first clue that maybe it's not really because my mama didn't love me enough or I was in a bad marriage that I was having so much chocolate. Maybe there was this external force targeting millions of dollars at my reptilian brain, right? By the way, the reptilian brain doesn't know love. When the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Right? It's the, um, it's the mammalian brain that's it, that's kind of lies on top of it and says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on my tribe and the people that I love? And then the neocortex says, well, what impact is that going to have? That's the most recently evolved part of the brain. This all works, by the way, if you don't believe in evolution, if you just think God put it there, it's the same thing. The reptilian brain still doesn't know love. The most recently evolved part of the brain says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your long-term plans? What about the kind of person you're trying to be in society? What about your contribution? What about your spirituality or your art or your music or you know, that building that you're working on or that great, that great novel that you're writing? And so I started to get an understanding that maybe I had it backwards. Maybe instead of nurturing this thing, maybe it was going to have to be a more like an alpha wolf being challenged for leadership in a pack. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? It, there's an air of superiority. And if you think about it, we, we kind of do that with our biological urges already. We all live in a civilized society, a stride of this animal inside of us that wants to pee right now or you know, wants to run out and hug someone. You know, wants to wants to smack someone in the face. That we all live with the requirement that we subjugate those impulses to our rational selves, to our more compassionate selves, to our more civilized self. And I started to think, well, maybe, maybe this is another case of that. Maybe this biological urge, which is being stimulated by industry. I, I always say, every time we're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank, right? Let me tell you the third thing that I discovered that really caused me to flip the paradigm. I was doing all these studies for industry, so I knew how to conduct large studies. And I decided I wanted to do one for myself. I was still convinced that there were some personality variables that related, were related to what I was overeating and that I should figure out how to, how to solve that. So I set up this large study on the internet. This was back in like 98 or 99, I think. And for several years, when clicks were cheap, I got, over those several years, I got 40,000 people to take the study. And what I asked them was, what foods do you have difficulty stopping once you start? And what's bothering you in your life? Where do you feel stressed? Where do you feel happy? I found out that people that struggled with chocolate like me, because I always started with chocolate with my binges, then I progressed to pizza and Pop-Tarts and everything like that. But when people struggle with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. If they struggled with pretzels or chips or crunchy, salty things, they tended to be more stressed at work. 
And if they struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and pasta and bagels and pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I thought maybe I'm onto something. So I called up my mom. And you know, my mom is not only a therapist, but she raised me. And I said, Mom, I'm not in a good marriage. And it's no, no secret that I'm not happy. But why do I run to chocolate when I get lonely or depressed or brokenhearted? Is there something in my upbringing you could share with me? And she, she gets this horrible look on her face. And like she, I come from a Jewish family. Well, we all have all this guilt. And she gets this really guilty, horrible look on her face. She's just, I'm so sorry, Glenn. I'm so sorry. And I said, Mom, what is it? It's okay. I, I love you. Whatever happened, it was 40 years ago. I don't care. Just, I'm just trying to figure it out. And I have the study. I'm trying to figure it all out. She says, well, in 1965, when you were one year old, your father was a captain in the army. And I was terrified that we were going to send him to Vietnam. And we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I thought, I'm going to be an army widow with two small kids. And I'm going to miss him. I was scared he was going to go to Vietnam. At the same time, my dad, your grandfather, had just got out of prison. And... I didn't know that he was doing these things. I didn't know that he was guilty, but he was. And I'd idolized him my whole life, and I became extremely depressed. So half the time when you came to me for love or for some healthy food or even just to play, I couldn't give you a hug or some healthy food. I was too busy sitting and staring at the wall, feeling anxious and depressed myself. So I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. I'm dating myself with that brand. And I kept it in a refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the Bosco on the refrigerator and you'd open up the bottle and you'd suck on the top and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And then I didn't have to worry about giving you what you needed. And so Colleen, there it is, right? That's, that's the why. That's, that's how this all started. And if it was like we think about in the movies, if you figured out why at that moment, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry. And I would never eat chocolate again or never struggle with chocolate again. But that's not the way it worked. I mean, I, we did have a hug. It was a good conversation to have. I learned a lot about her past during that time. I learned a lot about myself. And I started to forgive myself more, which is important. It's an important part of recovery. But I actually wound up eating more chocolate and binging more after that. And the reason is kind of embarrassing, but it's a big part of what led me to a solution the reason is there was this voice in my head. I'm, I'm not schizophrenic, but just a, a set of words in my head that went something like this. You know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life, you're going to have to just keep on binging on chocolate. Let's go get more right now. Yippee, yippee, let's get it. And so at that point, when I realized that's what was happening, I said, now, wait a minute. Maybe trying to fill the hole in my heart is not really what's going to do it. Maybe nurturing my inner wounded child back to health is not what's going to do it. And I was putting it together with the consulting I was doing for these big companies and the other studies that I'd read and the fact that the reptilian brain doesn't know love in the first place. And the reptilian brain is a seed of feast and famine, by the way. So that's, that's the response that gets us all to overeat. That's, that's the response that says, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. That throws all of your best laid plans out the door. And I, I said to myself, if an emotion is the fire, right? Let's say you have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace. That's okay. In fact, that might even be an asset. If you have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace, people will gather around it. It becomes the center of hearth and home. They make memories. They tell stories. They hug and they laugh and they cry. 
if that fireplace has a hole in it or something is poking little holes in it, then one ash can get down and burn down the house. And I said, well, what if my emotions are like the fire? And the problem isn't really with the fire, it's with the fireplace. And what if this little voice of justification keeps on poking holes in that fireplace? Maybe I should stop trying to put out the fire and I should fix the fireplace instead. So here's what I did. And I was not going to publish this. This was going to be a very private thing just for me to recover myself. I decided that my my reptilian brain, I was going to call it my inner pig. I wish I picked a different metaphor. I know a lot of people don't like the word pig. You could call it your food monster if you want to use this or, or whatever else you want to call it as long as it's not a cute little child you want to nurture back to health. But I decided to call it my inner pig. I draw very clear, bright lines so that I would know the difference between healthy and unhealthy behavior. There are a lot of reasons for that. I can tell you later if you're curious. For example, I would say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then if I heard a little voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough, even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain any weight. You can always start again tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. Let's do it right now. Yippee, let's go get some. I would say, that's not me. That's my inner pig. It's squealing for pig slop because chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as crazy as it sounds, as, as crude as it sounds for a sophisticated psychologist like me with all these millions of dollars of consulting behind him and all these publications and everything, the thing that would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse and was eventually responsible for my recovery, and I, I lost about probably 75, 80 pounds. I don't know what I weighed at the top because I stopped weighing myself because I got depressed about it. But more importantly, my triglycerides came down. I was getting yelled at by doctors that I was going to die and my rosacea and eczema. I, I was miserable. I was pretty miserable. And I lost the weight, not, not immediately. It wasn't a miracle, but it would wake me up. And what disappeared, what disappeared was this sense of powerlessness and confusion. I no longer felt like there was an overwhelming out of control urge. I no longer felt like I was at the mercy of my impulses. I recognized that I was making conscious choices and it was within my power. I had free will. And then something interesting happened. I decided that I'm making the rules in the first place, right? Why am I breaking my own rules? Why don't I just make rules that I'd be willing to stick with? And so I started to make simpler rules. And at first, I wasn't really losing weight from them, but I could comply. And I know now that the benefit of that was that I set a low enough bar that I could start to move my critical food decisions from my impulses and emotions to my intellect. I know now that that was the mechanism of change. And that's what I did. And slowly but surely, I, I started weighing myself again and making adjustments to you know, accomplish the weight loss that I wanted to accomplish. And you know, I'm, not, I'm not a skinny guy, but I hover around 200, 205 most of the time now when I was up towards 280. And it was a very, I know it sounds really harsh and crazy, but it worked. And for, for about eight years, I kept the journal, me versus my inner pig, all the crazy things my inner pig would say and why it was wrong. For example, when the inner pig says it would be just as easy to start tomorrow, well, it turns out that by the principles of neuroplasticity, because in neurology, what fires together, wires together, if you have a craving and then you indulge it, it's going to be stronger tomorrow. So 
every craving is an opportunity for self-love or self-harm, it's either going to be stronger or weaker tomorrow. Thank God you have the craving. You can make it weak tomorrow. I would keep a journal about why the pig was wrong, why everything that it said it was wrong. You failed so many times before, you can't possibly hope to succeed now. Yippee, let's just go binge. You might as well just binge. Well, turns out the research on permanent weight loss suggests that the primary differential between people who lose weight and keep it off for five years versus those that lose weight and gain it back is how many attempts they've had behind them. So it seems that the path to permanent success involves a multitude of failures. So the fact that I failed so many times before is more predictive of the possibility of me succeeding than the possibility of me failing this time. And so I just, I kept this journal. It got better and better. As I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor partner in a publishing company and they wanted to do some marketing experiments with their own books so they could attract better offers. And the CEO called me and said, could you write a book? And it was perfect timing because I was getting divorced and I had this eight years of journals in my, in my archives. And I said, well, I have this crazy thing that I used to lose weight. Should I turn it into a book? And he said, send it to me. So I take a month and I turn the journal into a book and I send it to him. He calls me back two weeks later. And he says, Glenn, I don't eat donuts. Donuts are pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he's proceeded to lose almost 100 pounds now. But in the interim, we published the book and we did some experiments. And that just got it off the ground. I had no idea it was going to cause this viral swell. And I was going to wind up with um, you know, almost a million readers. And I was going to be this crazy doctor that goes around and says, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I've got a pig inside me. And maybe you do too. And that's what happened. I, I had to close down my other businesses. And so I put my full energies into this. And um, it's the most meaningful thing I've ever done. It turns out that it helps a lot of other people. And there are a lot of nuances and things like that. But I pinch myself every day. I can't believe that I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's my story. I work mostly with um, binge eaters and overeaters and people who have difficulty stopping where they want to stop. People that eat beyond their own best judgment. And for um, our listeners, the name of the book is called Never Binge Again, and it's free on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. And if you get it from the website there, it's free there too. And there are a whole bunch of other things I can give you, but yep. So what, what kind of people do you work with the most in terms of chronic illnesses? I do work with a lot of type 2 diabetics. As a matter of fact, just after their diagnosis, I find that type 2 diabetics are most amenable to change. It's interesting when we we're trying to research what predicts, you know, because we've had over a thousand clients now. And we, when I say we, I've got five coaches that work with me in a little network. And we're always tracking results. And one of the things that we find, we thought that having a, a positive future to look forward to would be the thing that really distinguished success from failure. Now, it turns out that it's important, but the thing that really distinguishes success from failure the most, it's like having a hungry bear running after you. If you can see the ghost of Christmas future, to use the Ebenezer Scrooge analogy, you know, remember when they, he was a cheapo and he was a miser and they were showing that he wound up all alone and depressed and this miserable future. We discovered that when your miserable future seems certain or close to certain because of the way that you're eating, that people are willing to change. We combine that with painting a positive future and a future pacing them into it, but it's really that hungry bear that says, oh my God, I saw my mother go blind from diabetic retinopathy. I saw you know, her get a limb amputated because of this and I don't want to go through that. Or I work with a lot of nurses who are just kind of on the border of being diabetic and they tell me about 
what horrible things they see with their, with their patients. So a lot of those people. I get a lot of bulimic people also. I did not design this for bulimia. I, I don't offer any of this as a treatment. By the way, I offer this as a, because um, really what I'm doing is restoring people's sense of free will and autonomy. And I wasn't sure I could get the, I don't have a pig. You know, there's a pig inside me and I don't need pig stop. I wasn't sure I could get that through my, my board. So I decided to offer this as coaching instead of um, formal treatment. But it, it turns out that it's very consistent with the cognitive behavioral therapies that are being documented as successful with binge eating these days. But I, I do work with them. I do get a, a slew of bulimic people who tell me that they use the book to stop, which surprises me because I was never bulimic. I was exercise bulimic, I guess you could say, but I, I could never make myself throw up and I didn't design this at all. But people um, will come in and say they made a decision to never purge again and then they you know, once you draw that line, the technique is to listen very carefully for that voice inside you that says, oh, yes, you will, and here's why. And then you go through a series of steps to disempower it. So binge eaters, overeaters, that's who I work with. Yeah. So let's take a, take a moment to actually define what a, a binge is in your book, because it's, it's not necessarily eating a whole bunch of stuff at once. Right. A lot of people will ask me what the definition of a binge is. And they're surprised when I tell them that the question is a pig squeal in and of itself. The reason that question is a pig squeal in and of itself is because your pig is saying, well, if we haven't crossed the line yet, we can keep on eating, right? It's bottom-seeking. It's bottom-seeking behavior. And what I tell people is, well, what I suggest is that you paint a clear bullseye for yourself. Now think of one simple rule that you'd like to follow. I'll never go back for seconds. I only eat pretzels at Major League Baseball games. I only have chocolate on the weekends. I always put my fork down between bites. Anything that might work for you that'll give you a big bang for the buck, but it's not too onerous. Define a really clear bullseye and then make sure that you know where the boundaries of that bullseye are, is, is or are. Boundaries of the bullseye is. My mother was an English teacher. She would be having a fit right now. And that way you know by how much you missed if you miss it in what direction and what adjustments you make. If you think of an Olympic archer aiming for a bullseye, they try to become one with the target. They aim with perfection so they can purge their mind of doubt and uncertainty. But when they do miss, and very frequently they do, they are looking squarely at it and saying, well, what adjustments do I make? Do I stand a little further back? Maybe I didn't think about the wind resistance. With food, people have been taught to believe in our culture that if you really look at small mistakes, well, then you're just going to go off the rails and have an all-out food orgy. And that's silly. That's like saying if you miss the bullseye with your archery target, that you should shoot the rest of the arrows into the air or into the audience. You don't do that. You just, you just make adjustments. So the reason I went through that whole preamble is because I like to define a binge as one step outside of the bullseye so that people become accustomed to aiming at that bullseye with perfection, which is the psychology of winners. If you talk to Lance Armstrong or you talk to, you know, a mountain climber or, you know, Olympic cyclist or something like that, you'll, you'll see them picturing themselves successful at the top of the mountain before they even start out. Now, do they make it all the time? No, they, they don't make it all the time. And then they forgive themselves with dignity if they don't. But if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably wind up someplace else. And there's no point in playing blind archery. So I define a binge as one bite, taste, or swallow off of your carefully constructed bullseye. And I recommend you construct that bullseye 
as a reasonable target that you can actually hit most of the time. What are some common symptoms of eating disorders that you've seen? Well, for that, you could look in the DSM-5 and you'll see that there's a sense of self-disgust and self-loathing. And there's a voice which turns out to be binge-motivated in and of itself. I'll explain that in a second. But there's a voice in size that says, if you're not perfect, you're nothing. You took a step off, therefore you're completely out of control. You must have fallen into a some type of never world where you can't control your hands and your arms and your legs and your mouth and your tongue. Therefore, we might as well binge now because you're too pathetic to resist the next bite. It turns out what the pig is trying to do there, this is the voice of the pig, it's trying to wear you down so you feel too weak to resist the next binge. Once you recognize that, it becomes hard to keep yelling at yourself. And if you refuse to keep yelling at yourself after you make a mistake and you're determined to only learn from it, to collect evidence of success, to say, well, okay, I had five cupcakes instead of 15, how come? Or I stopped after 12 hours instead of 12 days. How did I do that? Start asking yourself, how can I stop as opposed to why can't I stop? And your brain will collect evidence of success and start to form a success identity. So that's a very strong symptom of most binge eaters. And one of the ways that we do that, by the way, is to help them understand the function of guilt and shame in the psyche. See, guilt and shame are not completely useless. They are way overdone for binge eaters. We, I often tell people that you can see the shame on a former binge eater's face even when they're thin. You know, I've had people come up to me and say, you used to be a binge eater, right? They, they can tell. They can tell. We, we all kind of share this kind of droopy, oh my God, you don't know what I used to do with the garbage pail and seven drive throughs and my roommate's food. And I, I, yes, I, anything anyone has done out there, by the way, I've done myself. So guilt and shame, but, but there, is a, there is a function of it in the psyche. There are, it, and it's a function akin to physical pain. There are disorders in this world that children are born with where they can't feel physical pain and we can't keep them alive more than four or five years because they run into the sharp edges. They don't know. They don't have any way to learn. If you back into a hot stove, you want to feel physical pain. Now, what you don't want to do is say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on the stove and just burn the whole thing off. No, you want to let the pain get your attention. Pay attention, make adjustments so you don't hit the stove again, and then let it go. Then let it go. Anything beyond that is a pig's game. Perseverating on guilt, getting stuck on guilt, that's a pig just trying to either do penance in advance for the next binge or make you feel too weak to resist the next one. So it's helpful for binge eaters to recognize that that little twinge of guilt or shame when they make a mistake is adaptive. But once they've recognized it and they've analyzed what's gone wrong and what they're going to do to fix it, then they really need to let it go. Other symptoms that we observe in binge eaters, I mean, a lot of people are pre-diabetic. People, there's a big overlap with insomnia and nightmares and anxiety. And we find that people are isolating. They're shrinking back from life because they have, um, they have this belief that they can't be seen or they're not worthy until they're thin. And we have to make them feel like they're Binge eating is not a crime. It's not a crime to be overweight. You know, you're lovable just like you are. And the sooner that you get 
back to real life and stop worrying about what your friends are going to say and treat yourself like you are lovable, the sooner you're going to be able to get on with your, your recovery. So those are the kind of things that we observe in, in binge eaters. Why do you think overeating, stress eating, and, and binge eating are so prevalent in culture today? Well, part of it is the effectiveness of the food industry. I mean, this was back in the 90s. I was doing all this research with them, and they were just starting to to ramp it up. But um, they really know how to push those buttons. They know where the bliss point is. They know how much nutrition it would take to satisfy you. They are spending billions of dollars on rocket scientists to figure out how to break your hungry in full meter. So, you know, a lot of people walk around saying, well, I just want to learn how to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. I think that if you're past a certain point with binge eating and overeating, that what you need are external intellectual measures of how much is enough and when to start, and that you run with that for four to six months, maybe a year, while your natural uh, propensity to know when you're hungry and know when you're full restores itself. And then, and you eat out of hunger and fullness you know, between those lines. And then you start to relinquish some of those controls and you can eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full again. But industry is breaking your hungry and full meters. Make no mistake about that. There are two other reasons though. One is that the culture tells us that we need to use guidelines and not rules. They would say, eat well 90% of the time, stop and indulge 10% of the time. The problem with that Let's take chocolate, for example. Suppose I'm going to eat chocolate 10% of the time and avoid it 90% of the time. It's a great idea in theory, but every time I'm in Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar that has my name on it, I'm going to have to make another chocolate decision. And decisions wear down your, your willpower. Decisions are mentally fatiguing. There are only so many good decisions we can make every day. That's why, by the way, if you're having trouble overeating at night, you should try to make your food decisions in the morning, get things all set up for yourself in the morning. And so if I really want to have chocolate 10% of the time, I'm better off saying, I'll only ever have chocolate the last three days of the calendar month. That's 10% of the time. And probably I would give it a specific amount to that just to bound it. And that way, my chocolate decisions have been made for me all month long. And I don't have to worry when I'm in Starbucks on the 13th of the month that this is time for me to have chocolate, right? So that, that's part of it. Another part of it is the advertising industry. People think that advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you. There's a reason they're spending billions of dollars on advertising. These are not a whole bunch of stupid executives. People like to make fun of the commercials and everything, but there's a reason that they're doing that. And um, there are five to 7,000 messages beamed at us per year about food over the internet and the airwaves. Maybe a half dozen of them are about eating more fruits and vegetables, right? It's all industrially sponsored processed food for the most part. Then the addiction treatment industry says, you can't quit even if you want to. The best you could do is abstain one day at a time. These are impulses that are irresistible to human beings. You can only abstain with the help of a higher power. So basically, there are a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of good that goes on there also because it catapults people into a more spiritual life and doing a lot of soul searching and socializing and that kind of thing. But, but ultimately, that's, that's just not true. And they, those addiction treatment models, if you look at the scientific research on it, and there's not a lot of it, 
they're either at parity or worse than doing nothing at all when it comes to food. So here you have, it's, it's a perfect storm. The advertising industry, the advertising industry knows how to push your buttons. I skipped a little story there. I'll tell you in a second. The big food industry is spending billions of dollars on substances that your body will like more than oxygen, right? I mean, have you noticed that people say they don't like fruit and vegetables anymore? Yeah, that, that happens to me. I, I went low carb in 2016 and I can't really stomach the taste of any sugar anymore. It's really interesting. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's, that's a different reason. Okay. A lot of people don't like fruit and vegetables because they're eating ultra high carb. They're having a lot of sugar. And because that's an unnatural, super concentrated stimulus, your brain and your pleasure system downregulate to only respond to super concentrated stimuli and not to mm, the natural okay. fruits in an apple or something like that. So it's not, it's not strong enough to get that hit. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this is going on and it's, it's just a perfect storm for, for overeating. It's a perfect storm for breaking your hunger in full meter. It's a perfect storm for, you know, and, and then you combine that with the economic and social pressures these days to, especially during the pandemic, to eat what everybody else is eating. And you would think that it's hopeless, but it's really not because it's kind of like the matrix. Let me see that movie, which that was the coolest movie that I didn't understand. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> some, some comedian said that, I forget who. And when you really know what's going on, you realize that with just some forethought and determination and, and some cognitive work, you can define who you want to be in specific situations and you can stop relegating these decisions to the big companies and the restaurants and just a happenstance. So you can say, I will only ever have two pieces of bread in a restaurant once per calendar week. And then you figured out the kind of person that you want to be around bread and restaurants, right? And then when you have those crystal clear definitions, suddenly the voice of your pig or your food monster becomes very clear because it's any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests you're going to break that rule ever. And so then suddenly you are more aware of these previously unconscious impulses that people will say they find themselves... My mom used to say she had a bunch of Oreo cookies on her, Oreo cookie crumbs on her, on her pillow when she woke up in the morning. She can't remember doing it. But we work with these high levels of very discrete lines and very clear awareness so that you have a defense against that. And um, you know, then we start to disempower things, which is, which is what I did in that journal for eight years. All the different things that your pig says as a reason to break the rule, you start to disempower that and you, um, you get where you want to go. So yeah, it's a perfect storm. It's, it's a hard society that we live in. So let's say you've created a plan for yourself, a food plan or food protocol. What if you forget your plan? Well, when you get married, I see you're wearing a ready ring. Did your husband say to you, honey, I'm pretty sure that I can be faithful to you, but what if I forget? I'd be really worried if he said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a guy you would marry, right? No. <laughs> you can make a plan to remember or you can make a plan to forget. And a food plan is a plan to remember. Now, we do, as a practical matter, people do forget and do something unconsciously. They do. Also, things happen where people aren't aware of what is in the food that they're eating. For example, I eventually evolved to say I'll never eat chocolate again. And once I was at a Mexican restaurant and I had a meal 
And I felt a little too happy after the meal. And so I asked the waiter what was in the dish. And apparently in some Mexican dishes, they put some chocolate in there. And I didn't consider myself to have broken my food plan at that point because I, I consider there to be a consciously and purposely clause before every rule. So if I say I'll never have chocolate again, what I'm really saying is I will never consciously and purposely have chocolate again. Now, if at that point I said to the waiter, okay, bring me some more, then I would be consciously breaking the rule. But you know, if I made a genuine mistake and I didn't know, then you know, I forgive myself and move on. Even if I had broken the plan, it would be silly to think that I should just keep breaking it for the rest of the day. It's kind of like if you chip a tooth, you don't go get a hammer to bang the rest of them out. If you run a red light, you don't go running the rest of the red lights in town. That's interesting that you felt happier after having the chocolate, even though you didn't know the chocolate was in there. Yeah, well, I, there's a very distinct high that's associated with chocolate that I recognized. Yeah, and I, I don't know another... I mean, I suppose if I had three cups of coffee, it would be similar, but I think it's the combination with the theobramine and the caffeine and some of the other chemicals in chocolate. I, I recognize it very, very clearly. Still to this day, if I had something like that, I would recognize it. So if somebody does consciously and what was the other word you used? Consciously and purposely. And purposely. So if somebody does consciously and purposely go off their plan, how would they stop beating themselves up afterwards? We call that a conscious pig party. And it, it happens all the time. People do that. And I can't take that away from you because if I took that away from you, I'd be taking away your free will. But if you have a conscious pig party, what you want to do is take a breath and step back and ask yourself, would you like to stop? You know, it's, what is it that your will is? What do you really want to do? And the, the pig will say that you can't and you're pathetic and all that kind of thing. And then you reconstruct what happened. Look at the hour or so before you made that decision. What did the pig say? Were you taking care of yourself? We find that conscious pig parties usually come during a day, in particular, where people let their blood sugar get too low. They didn't eat enough. They were overtired. There were too many decisions impending upon them. Who's going to take the kids to soccer practice? How am I going to get this report done? When are we going to have this meeting? Get stuck in traffic. And so you want to start to build the muscle of preparing for those types of events. And you also want to build in some additional self-care during the day. You know, even five or 10 minutes to just take a break and walk outside and take a breath can, can make a difference. The question, and really the thing that distinguishes success from failure in our program, in addition to the Ghost of Christmas Future, is not whether people make a mistake, but whether they're determined to learn from every mistake that they make. And so if you ask the question, what have I learned from this? What can I learn from this to make things better next time? And you're determined to get back up and aim at the archery target. That helps a lot. There's also a, um, there's a trick to overcome the idea, which the pig will throw at you, that you're pathetic and you can't do anything. And if you ask yourself the question, what can I still do? What can I still do even though I made this mistake? Can I still go out, get up and go for a walk around the block? Am I still capable of reading a book to my kids? Am I still capable of making dinner without eating X, Y, or Z? Am I still capable of you know, drinking a glass of spring water? What can I still do that's good for me and good for the people around me? That, um, that helps. Another thing, believe it or not, that helps if it's not medically contraindicated for your diet is 
take about a half pound of leafy green vegetables, put them in a blender with some water and drink them down kind of quickly like medicine. Here's why I think that works. I think that when people binge, it's usually on some type of industrial food, you know, which could include pasta or pizza or things that we didn't eat on the savanna. And in a way, your survival drive, your natural survival drive has been hijacked at that time. It's a biological error. My body thinks that potato chips are the nutrition that I need as opposed to you know, whole fruit and vegetables or lean protein or whatever your dietary philosophy suggests. My, my approach is diet agnostic, by the way. We work with people on all different types of you know, high carb, low carb, whatever you're, whatever you're eating. And when you present the body with greens, which are one of the only foods that seems to be universally accepted across different dietary philosophies, if you present your body with enough greens and chlorophyll, you're saying to your survival drive, this is where the good stuff is. And you will find that you almost immediately stop obsessing about, well, could I get away with one more dish, one last um, box of mac and cheese or one last donut or pretzel or whatever it is. And then you collect evidence of success like we talked about, what went better than last time. And you think of it like a muscle that you're building. So people get in trouble because for some reason, after a mistake, they adopt a perfectionistic attitude and think that if they're not perfect, then they're nothing and therefore they might as well binge. But they refuse to adopt a perfectionistic attitude when they're striving towards the goal. They'll just say, well, progress, not perfection. I'll, I'll do the best I can, which mostly means I'll try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. So, you know, it all has to do with analyzing what went wrong and do you need to readjust the target and, you know, how do you take care of yourself better and what are you going to do about it? And if you keep falling down, keep getting up until you stay up. Fall down seven times, get up eight. That's how you recover. The name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. The name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. What are some examples of rules that you've seen your type 2 diabetic patients have really good success with and maybe some type 1 diabetics? I find that people usually know. There is a guy work with a, who didn't work with me directly, worked with one of the coaches, who he was a trucker. And he, I think he was developing diabetes, and he had to lose some weight. Yeah, I think he had to lose about 200 pounds. And he said, he's on the road all the time. He can't give up fast food. So the coach said, well, what could you do? And he said, well, I could not go back for seconds. I'll never go back for seconds. So he proceeded to lose 150 pounds, starting with, I'll never go back for seconds. You know, that usually, when you get a simple rule like that, usually builds some momentum and then people want to do more. One of the things that we've learned is that the pig will try to set the bar too high and have you be really, 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 really good and try to lose the weight quickly. And then people bounce back the other way. So we try to start people with a really low bar that works. So other rules that might work for a diabetic. Sometimes it's sugar, flour, and alcohol. Sometimes if people are willing to do a 30-day experiment without sugar, flour, and alcohol, first of all, their blood sugar and their insulin level start to normalize pretty quickly and the doctors are happier with them within a month. They usually see a difference within a month. But secondly, they don't realize that sugar, flour, and alcohol create the cravings for themselves. Their, their pig is telling them there's no way you could give that up for 30 days, but they don't 
realize that they're not going to be tortured forever because those substances are actually creating the craving by themselves. The first hundred hours is the hardest. You, you might just be a hundred hours from freedom. What would you so tell I, those people who are not willing to even give up the sugar? I might ask them if they'd be willing to moderate it, but I, I ask, mostly I ask people what they would be willing to do. And sometimes people need to fail a couple of times before they're willing to consider letting something go. And then they always tell me how much easier it was than they thought it was going to be and how grateful they are that they actually did give it up. But you know, I mean, I tried 12 ways to Sunday to keep eating chocolate. I'll only ever have it after a two-hour workout. I'll only have it on the weekends. I'll only have it when I'm out to dinner with someone I love. I'll only have it when I'm at a sporting event. I'll only have it after I've done a 12-mile hike. And eventually I said, you know what, Glenn, you just can't have chocolate. Life would be a lot easier without chocolate. (laughs) So um, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people's journeys. And I'm not here to take away people's freedom. I'm not here to tell them what to eat. This whole thing worked for me because I realized nobody was telling me what to do. So let people do what they want to do. And I encourage them to seek more information. We have groups and forums where they hear other people talking about it. And sometimes the vicarious experience of seeing other people go through it gives people the courage to to do it. It's also really helpful if you understand that you want to correct the biological error. So when my body said, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt, I learned in part it was because I needed energy at that time. And I eventually came to the conclusion, I experimented with all kinds of different things. I eventually came to the conclusion that if I had a banana kale smoothie, like a head of kale juiced and about six bananas, and I'm not sure if diabetic people would be able to do that, but for me, that removed the craving. I didn't get high the same way I would get high by eating six chocolate bars, but I, it's like scratching an itch. Like, so it wasn't orgasmic, but the itch was gone and I wasn't bothered by it anymore. And so you, you need to look for that. I, I eventually found that um, when I would crave salty soups, like salty bean soup, or for me personally, I'm not supposed to have grains. And if I would be craving rice and beans, it was usually because I didn't have enough minerals from vegetables that day. And if I had a lot of romaine lettuce in particular, I'd find the cravings for the salty bean soup would go away. So if you look at my refrigerator now, I've got the whole top shelf filled with about 12 heads of romaine lettuce. And that's worked for me for years and years, for the most part. Yeah. In your book, you talk about a few different categories for rules that people can start to build their their plan around. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah. the, The most important criteria for a rule is that it's objective which means that if Colleen and I follow you around for a month, we'll know whether you broke it or you didn't. It's really easy for us to see. So I'll eat when I'm hungry and I'll stop when I'm full. It's not a rule that works with this system because we don't really know if you're hungry or full. That's a very internal subjective thing. I'll never go back for seconds is objective. We would know whether you went back for seconds or not. So as long as the rule meets that criteria, you can make it up any way you want to. But to help you think it through, we came up with four categories, which are never rules. And that's when you want to give up something entirely. So I'll never eat bread again, or I'll never have chocolate again. There are conditional rules, which is when you want to moderate something. So I will never have more than two ounces of chocolate per calendar day again. That's my sister, by the way. She can um, can have two little squares of chocolate and say, I'm going to fold up the rest and put it back for later. And I don't know how she can do that, but I can't do that. Some people um, are moderators and some people are abstainers. I'm yeah, an abstainer. Yeah, I, yeah, me too. Me too, Colleen. So those are conditional rules. 
always rules are things that you'll do every day. Like I'll always, I'll always drink two big glasses of pure spring water when I first get up. I always do one push-up in the morning before I get out of bed. I always write a hypothetical food plan for the next day before I go to bed at night, those types of things. And then we ask people to think through an unrestricted category. What are the things that you can eat in unlimited amounts um, so that you know that you're not going to starve? And that stops the pig from saying, you can't do this, you're going to starve. So that's how we guide people to start making food plans. And I'll, I'll tell you at the end where you can get some sample food plan templates that are constellations of rules that fit most in a dietary philosophy. How should people deal with social situations or things like holidays and traveling and places where they feel like they can't actually follow their plans? Well, first of all, planning makes all the difference. So some people have one set of food rules for their everyday life and another set of food rules for when they're traveling. So maybe some people will allow one flour dish every other day or something when they're traveling. And I find that about two-thirds of my clients can do that and about one-third can't. Like you're saying, there are moderators and abstainers. I can't have chocolate when I'm traveling. I can't have chocolate you know, when I'm 90 years old and on my deathbed. I just, I just can't have chocolate. It's just not for me. But a lot of people can. And if you make your decisions beforehand, then you're not succumbing to temptation. Restaurants in particular are very tempting. The whole thing is to set up to seduce your pig. So if you look online beforehand and you enter exactly what you're going to eat into uh, one of those trackers or you just write it down, then your decisions are made that you're not subject to the social influences and the, the tempting smells and the decisions that you'd have to make at the spur of the moment when everything is aligned against you. So that, that helps a lot to be able to use conditional rules in different situations and um, plan and decide beforehand. The um, Social situation requires a little more explanation because there are social factors that press for people to all eat the same thing in a group. It's not just taste and convenience, not just that people want permission to eat what they're going to eat and they would feel better if you had what they did because of that. It's, that's true. They don't want to feel guilty about what they're eating. But there are elements that are woven into the fabric of society that work better when people eat the same thing. So if you think about Warring tribes breaking bread to reassure each other that they're not there to rape and pillage, but to become allies and forge bonds. That's one of them. If you think about the idea that, you know, it's only since the Industrial Revolution that we live in a time of plenty with food. There, most of our evolution, food was not really that plentiful. And, you know, there would be a catch or a harvest. And if you didn't eat what was available, you risked getting too ill or too weak to help the rest of the tribe with all the labor that was required. And maybe they were going to have to take care of you. And so I don't think back in the day, you know, I don't think in the caveman days that it was like, oh, fag not feel like eating mammoth today. I think <laughs> Vilma would say, fag eat mammoth or thamoth die. Like, I don't think it was a matter of individual taste. I think it was more like step out of line or I'll kill you. You're going to eat what's available and that's it. And so, and there are, you know, when armies had to cover progressively larger swaths of territory and supply their troops over hundreds of miles, you couldn't carry fruits and vegetables or meats with you to feed those troops. So we had to come up with more condensed sources of things. And that had to be okay. So it became part of the culture that that was okay, or you'd be threatening the, the integrity of the culture. 
So the bottom line is that when you refuse to eat what everybody else is eating, there's an anxiety, an underlying, I think, instinctual anxiety that arises in them that this is a threat to the tribe and they have to bring you back in line. So one of the things that you can do is focus on other things that you can do to signal that you're there in peace to reintegrate with the tribe and that the fabric of the tribe is okay. My favorite is called the alternative love gift technique. And when mom comes up to me when I walk into a Christmas dinner and she comes running up to me with a piece of my favorite chocolate pie, what I don't do is say, mom, you know, I don't eat that anymore. It's not healthy. My doctor says it'll raise my triglycerides. You don't want me to die, do you? I don't do that. Because what she's doing is trying to love me back into the tribe in the way that she knows how. So I'll say something like, you know what, mom, I ate a little too much at lunch. Do you happen to have any peppermint tea to settle my stomach? I'm giving her another way, something else she can give me to love back into the tribe. Or mom, I'm really cold. Does um, Michael, Mike, maybe Michael, her husband has a sweater I could wear. Ask for something that she can give you that really signal that you want to be part of things and is going to totally sidestep the conversation about whether you have the chocolate pie or you don't. So it's, it's those types of things that I help people to do in a social situation. Have you seen an increase in patients or clients during the COVID pandemic? Does the Pope wear a funny hat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. We are flooded. I mean, we're, we were doing pretty well beforehand, but I think our business is a little more than two and a half the size since the... Um, and I, I kind of wish it wasn't in a way because it's a horrible way for it to all happen. But we've developed some very specific techniques for helping people with that. It has to do with a couple of things. You know, we're, we're flooded with fear. We're flooded with fear all the time. My girlfriend is a hypnotist and she is always telling me that when you watch the news, particularly today, it's just... It's like a trance of fearful messages. You're, people are like, ah, 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 ah. and that is a lower brain function. Like that says our survival is threatened. And all day long, people are flooding themselves with this fear trance. And so, of course, the lizard brain is more active in saying, we have to go into survival mode. We have to get all the food that we can. This is an emergency. We're going to have to put some fat on in order to prepare for an upcoming famine whatever else is going to happen. We need to gather all the resources that we can. So the first thing you need to do are a lot of the standard things that people do to step out of fear. Take a breath, right? Take a breath. Write down what your fears actually are. Writing is an upper brain activity. Fear is a lower brain activity. Breathe in for shorter than you breathe out. When you breathe out, I think she says we're supposed to go for a count of seven when we breathe in and a count of 11 when we, when we breathe out. When you breathe out for longer than you leave in, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is all about resting and digesting and being in that animal state that says things are okay now. There's no emergency. The other part is asking yourself, because a lot of people are saying, well, what if this is it? What if this is my last days? What if I'm going to get the plague and you know, I'll be dead in two weeks? I better eat what I can now because this is my last chance to do that. And my counter to that is, if I'm destined to die of COVID-19, then I would like my last days to be, I would like to be as present as possible. I would like to be as peaceful as possible. I would like to know that I overcame my impulses and emotions, 
And I decided that I was the master of my own destiny. And I found my center in my food practices. So you can think of your food rules as a kind of practice. It's really, when I say I'll never have chocolate again, I'm not like white knuckling it saying, oh my God, I'll never have chocolate again. I've just made a decision to become the kind of person who doesn't have chocolate. It's become part of my character. It's become part of who I am. And I like that. I like that part of me. And if I'm going down, I'm going down as a guy who doesn't eat chocolate, right? If they find my bones by the refrigerator tomorrow, then there's not going to be a chocolate bar in my hand. So pandemic, no pandemic. If there's a nuclear war, if there are atom bombs on the way, you still won't find chocolate bars in my hand. So yeah, but no, the the pandemic is, um, uh, people are binging like crazy. What's really interesting is the last part of the pandemic increase has to do with food scarcity. But food's not really unavailable. There's just as much food available as there's always. We can't get freaking toilet paper, but we can get food, right? It's kind of funny that people are doing that, but yeah. I think at this point, it's more you can't get uh, Lysol wipes. (laughs) Yeah, now at least you can get masks. And I'm so ready for this to be done. I'm so ready for this to be done. You and me both. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are scared to seek help, even if they know they need it? Well, I grew up in a family. First of all, the help that we offer is not diagnostic. You're not going to get a label on your insurance forms that says that you have binge eating disorder, that says that you're, I mean, you, you might, or you might have depression, or you might have things that require treatment, but that's not what we do. So if you're seeking help from us, we're really going to educate you and give you some practical techniques that you might want to try. So you don't really have to be scared about working with us in that way. And you'll be in a, in a group full of people who feel very similarly. But If you're talking about actually getting help from a local professional, I can tell you, I grew up in a family of psychologists and going to a therapist for me was never something to be embarrassed about. It was something to look forward to. When I was young, my dad sat me down and said, Glenn, if you want to work things out in life, either get into therapy, but if you really want to work them out, become a therapist. Because there's nothing like spending day in and day out talking to people to figure out what you want to do with your own life. And so then when I was 16, he said I could have a car or I could go to therapy. (laughs) And I I chose therapy. I I was a dorky kid who chose therapy and I was proud of it. You know, you can't pull yourself up by your own shirt collar. We just don't have the leverage. There, we have a tendency to become myopic and see the world in one particular way. And I think that you know, it's important to find a good therapist. I I don't think just anyone will do. And what I tell people is they should shop for them them like a smart consumer. What that means is that you don't go to the first person that you talk to or just go to the first person that you talk to. You make half a dozen or a dozen calls and you look for the people that are willing to spend a little time on the phone with you to get to know you and see if they're a good match first. And then when you talk to them, you say, hey, I'm just curious, how do you know when to let your client talk and when you should talk. And that, that one question will elicit people's methodology. And you want someone who's got a method to their madness. You don't want someone who just goes by the seat of their pants because there's only so far someone that just goes by the seat of their pants can take you, even if they're really nice, even if you have a really warm connection with them. So I, I look for people that would have a, a methodology and then you know, have a couple of consultations. Go and see three people, five people. Don't just think about who your insurance will pay for. Think about 
whether this person will be good. Most therapists, if you can't afford it, can work out a time schedule that you can't afford. So you're probably thinking, well, I'm going to pay $100 a week and I'm going to go every week and that's $400 a month and I can't afford that. But what if your therapist could see you once every two or three weeks and you could write them a letter in between, right? I would rather someone, unless there's something urgent, unless there's something someone is feeling suicidal, is just unable to sleep or they can't really get by in their day-to-day life. And I would give the disclaimer that I'm not really talking about that situation. But to find a really good therapist is going to help you with your life, then you know, t- talk to a couple of people. It's going to be a very important person in your life. Talk to a few people, make a smart decision, and compare and contrast, take some notes. You'll find someone. You'll find someone good. And um, it's much less embarrassing than you think. Something we ask all of our guests is, what does burnout mean to you? And usually this is asking about diabetic burnout. But nowadays, food burnout and diet burnout is also happening, especially among the diabetic community. You know, when I stick very closely to my personal diet, which is not the diet that I'm trying to get anybody else to eat, my personal diet is largely raw vegan, uh, like whole foods, plant-based, mostly fruits and vegetables, uh, maybe the opposite of the way that you're, you're eating. Although I don't have processed sugars or grains or anything like that, unless I'm having a really carefully planned cheat day. But when I do that for a month, I find that I can taste the subtle differences in different types of fruits. And I, I get excited to try different ones. I found, um, Lori, is there any chance you could bring me one of those big giant bananas? It's big giant. I just want to show. I'd never seen one of these things before. I go to this little Hispanic produce market. Do you know what this is? It's some kind of cross between a plantain and a banana. And I came to the conclusion it's un banana gordo, which is a really big fat banana. But it tastes, um, it tastes different than a banana. And the subtle variation in taste is very stimulating to me. I'm not, and I'm not bored of it. So for when, our listeners, I'll take a screenshot of this frame and you can see what he's talking about because it looks like a short but really fat cucumber, but it's a banana and it's got black on it. It's, it's like a combination between a banana and a plantain. I think it comes from... Hawaii, but I'm always interested in trying new fruits. I, I found something called um, mame sapote, which tastes a little bit like a sweet potato. I'd never, I'd never had that before. So I investigate new healthy foods and I, I try to savor the variation in flavor to stop myself from burning out. But there's another subtle point to avoid burnout. We are so used to overstimulation in our society. All of the chemicals and the and the concentrations are unwieldy. We don't have these things in nature. And so if you want to de-addict yourself from this, if you want to stop being controlled by some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache who's laughing all the way to the bank when you eat that candy bar or bag of chips or whatever you're eating, then there's going to be a period where your pig says, this is boring. This is so boring. We can't stand this. But that's just the way life is supposed to be. And I'd like people to consider that we have been so heavily conditioned to expect the hyper excitement that we don't really know what things are supposed to taste like anymore. There's another piece of this. Your pig says boredom is intolerable. But what I find is that when people successfully go through it, there's a sense of their life purpose on the other side. The reason for that is that your libido, your 
your pleasure-seeking like psychological interest, it has to shift. If you withdraw your libido from some of these overstimulating chemicals and, and concoctions, then your libido has to go somewhere. And when you stop with the bags and the boxes and the containers, you're going to find things that are more valuable to you. Maybe it's just hugging your kids. Maybe you notice the way your kid's hair smells and you're just you know, enthralled with hugging them now. Maybe it's writing a book. Maybe it's spending more time out in nature. Maybe it's scrapbooking. Whatever it is, you'll find a better sense of purpose, but it's on the other side of boredom and you need to go through that. So my answer to how to avoid diet burnout is, in part, it's normal. And the other part is, why do you want to when there's all this wonderful stuff on the other side? So what, why can't we go through that? I know that's maybe not the exact answer that you were looking for, but um, something we've discovered that's kind of unusual. And you, you don't have to believe me about this. You just have to try it. You can be cursing me for two months until it comes about for you. But, yeah. Uh, some, something I like saying is take what works and leave the rest. So even if not all of this advice works for people, maybe some of it will. Yeah. So you have your own podcast called Never Binge Again. I do. What, what do you talk about the most on that podcast? And what is your core message for the people who listen to it? The core message, you know, it's a combination of my two favorite quotes, actually. One is by Jim Rohn. He says, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. People are usually afraid of discipline because they think that it takes away their freedom. But I don't think people realize that discipline provides freedom. When I practice all of my skills as a jazz musician, I then became able to express my soul freely because my fingers know where the structure of music is. And I can vary from that if I want to, to express myself, but I can come back to it so that the ear recognizes the structure and it sounds like music as opposed to noise. When I get in my car and I turn the wheel 30 degrees to the right, my steering wheel, the discipline of the engineers makes the wheels of the car turn 30 degrees to the right. And that's part, that discipline is part of why I can drive around town and have a much greater radius of locomotion, a lot more freedom because of the discipline that I'm relying on. So a life of freedom is better than a life of regret. The other quote that I think is part of our core message, and what we mostly do in the podcast is do demonstration coaching sessions, by the way, because um, this is such a weird philosophy in theory I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, why in the world does Colleen have a psychologist with a pig inside of a mutt? <laughs> it sounds really harsh, but it's actually a very compassionate, life-giving thing. Yeah, it, it gives a name to just the natural urges to eat outside of your plan. And so sometimes, I guess, for people who have that kind of external naming convention for an urge, it's easier to deal with. Yeah, exactly. The other quote that kind of combines with the philosophy is that you can have anything you want but you can't have everything you want. Peter McWilliams said that in the 80s. He's not really that popular, but you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And I think that that largely is true with food. There are some things that some people need to avoid, but I want to be able to hike to the top of a tall mountain and spend hours there feeling like I own the landscape. I can't do that if I'm 80 pounds heavier. Or I, I can, but it's miserable, right? So I could have chocolate bars all the time, or I could get to the top of the mountain. I could have anything I want, but I can't have everything I want. And I think people, they spend so much time trying, I think part of the overeating mentality is that, oh, I have to have everything that I want. 
well, what do you really want and what are you willing to sacrifice to get it? And what discipline do you want to add to your life to be able to do that? So that's the core message. The other part of the message is that it's easier than you think. You don't have to solve your deepest psychological problems to stop overeating. You just have to adopt some practical measures, commit to working on them, commit to getting up when you make mistakes. And is it good to work on your psychology? Absolutely. I'm still a psychologist. I still love to talk about the relationship of food to early memories and things like that. It's very interesting, but I think it's a diversion, which is not necessary. Or or rather, I think people need to know that it's not necessary to solve all your psychological problems in order to stop binging. Work on them in tandem. That's fine. You'll be a happier person if you solve your psychological problems, but you don't, you don't have to solve them to stop binging. One of the things I like to say is that all you need to do to never binge again is never binge again. Sounds simple, but some people might think it's hard. Yeah. Well, their pig says that it's hard. You start to purge all that doubt and uncertainty and recognize that the pig is squealing because the pig would prefer that it was hard, so you keep feeding it. Where would you like to see your practice go in the future? My goal is to help a million people a year stop binge eating. I don't have kids. I'd like to do something really significant where we're pushing a million readers, and I'd like to be able to help a million people per year stop binge eating. So right now, we're kind of pushing 100 people a month that we, you know, that we coach directly. I'd like to see that grow to 1,000 over the next couple of years. And in order to do that, I will you know, have to do more television and radio and have a much bigger presence so that our, we offer an awful lot of free materials that helps a lot of people who don't pay us a dime. And so to be able to help a thousand people directly, I will have to help probably 50,000, 70,000 people. And then down the road, we want to develop apps and social media applications and things like that to reach an even larger audience. So I've done some big things in my life and I like to think big because why not? What advice do you have for the young diabetics out there, either type one or type two? You know, this is serious. And your, your doctor tells you that it's serious. You don't need me to tell you that it's serious. But, but you know what, man? It's, it's serious. And if you think about what your doctor told you and the diet they want you, to ha- they want you to eat and you codify that into some very specific rules, you can use this system to make it a lot easier to comply than you think it is. And there are a lot of people who reverse type 2 diabetes anyway with, um, with diet. So it's not a death sentence. You can. Um, you can do an awful lot about it. Are you working I'm, on any projects right now that you're really excited about? I'm always working on projects. <laughs> Sounds um, like me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, our next book is a long series of success stories because people want the, the inspiration. And we're busy. You know, we just published a workbook, which has a real step-by-step flow to it, like kind of logical flow chart. And we're going to be adapting that to an application fairly soon. So those are the projects we're working on at the moment. And we're, we track our results very carefully. Right now, we get a 91% reduction in binge frequency during the first month. So we're, it drops to like 78%, I think, the second month. So we're, we're always working on making that better and measuring results and figure out what, what, what we can do. So that, those are the projects I'm, I'm into these days. So earlier, you mentioned some resources that you wanted to talk about. Can you mention what those are? 
Yeah, if there are three things that I will give you if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button. The first is a copy of the book for free in Kindle Nook or PDF format. If you prefer the paid version because you want a paperback, we have that. We also have an audible version. There's a charge for that too. But Kindle Nook and PDF are available for free. Click the big red button on Never Binge Again. The other two things are a series of recorded full-length coaching sessions so that you can see what it's like to actually go through this process. It sounds really weird. I know you're thinking this is crazy and harsh, but it's not, I promise. I'm not. <laughs> Good. So I'm in a coaching program already, and one of the most valuable pieces is watching other people get coached. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the best. We actually have hundreds of sessions recorded on the podcast on the blog, which you can also find at um, everybingyagain.com. And so, so I'll give you a couple of those. And then the last thing is a set of food plan starter templates. And these are constellations of potential rules that work together for ketogenic versus macrobiotic versus point counting versus calorie counting versus vegetarian, whatever floats your boat. We thought through a set of rules to get you started. And I call them starter templates because if I give you a diet, your pig will immediately say, hey, that doctor's diet is no good. Too bad, so sad, we'll have to find another one. Let's just binge in the meantime. Uh, it'll, ju- it'll jump you from diet to diet. So it's really critical we find for people to come up with their own. And lastly, where can people find you online besides your website, which is neverbingeagain.com? That's the best place to find us, neverbingeagain.com. There are links to our, our forum, neverbingeagainforum.com. There are links to our podcast. But really, if you go through the reader's bonus list, you'll get to everything that you need, including the coaching programs and other books that we've written. Neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you for coming on to talk. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you, dear. We have another review shout out section today. This review was left on iTunes for us. I'm the parent of a child with type one, and I find this podcast so informative. They cover a great variety of topics that are extremely relevant to people with type one and their families. And it helps to raise awareness about all the aspects of the disease that no one would know about unless they or a loved one is affected by T1D. It is inspiring listening to the hosts who don't let type one hold them back. They also feature interesting guests with connections to type one. Thank you for the review. The name on it is BBGHIJ. Thank you, BB. Our question for you this week is, do you struggle with overeating or binging as Dr. Livingston defines it? What food plan rules have you implemented that work for you? Share them in the comments. That is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thanks so much to Dr. Glenn Livingston for coming on as a guest to the show. Remember, you can find Glenn at neverbingeagain.com and you can find links to all of his other resources right there. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 52. That's the number 52. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. This is the perfect time to learn how to manage your mind, especially if it's around food. If you're stressed, burned out, overwhelmed, and want some help getting back on track and honoring your commitments to yourself, sign up for accountability coaching at inspiredforward.com slash coaching. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. Jesse's on Instagram as at JJ underscore crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send her questions or comments you have about type one or about the show. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts since that helps other people find us. Be sure to listen next week when we expand on college topics as we discuss how to manage your diabetes while in college. This is a deeper dive into some of the things we covered in episode 50. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.